we're going to be studying Priscilla, who is a noble servant. Uh, she was worthy of respect. And Priscilla has caused a lot of controversy throughout history because of her apparent role in the early church. And we're going to explore those scriptures together to see what we can come up with. Isn't that the best way? But what is not contested about Priscilla's life is that she worked hard and she was a faithful servant and she loved the Lord. And so before we get into the scriptures, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the examples that you have given us Again, Priscilla is just an ordinary woman that was used in an extraordinary way. And so as we discover everything there is about her, would you open our eyes to see who she is, who you made her to be, and help us to hear just the testimony of her life. And so we give you this morning, ask that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first scripture we're going to look at is Acts chapter 18, 1 through 3. And it begins with, Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So Paul has been traveling all over the place, preaching the gospel to anyone who would hear. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. So at one time, Priscilla lived in Rome with her husband, Aquila, and it was during a great time of upheaval in the whole Roman Empire. Uh, they were the, the Jews had been conquered by the Romans, and now Christ has come on the scene, and the Jews are all confused. They don't know, is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? And then he was crucified. He rose again, so some say, but the, you know, a lot of them aren't believing this. And so there's all this upheaval, and Caesar just says, you know what? I'm tired of it. Let's just kick them all out of Rome. And so that's what he did. And so Aquila and Priscilla had to make that long trek of 617 miles to Corinth. Now, I have a, my pointer here. This is so fun. Okay, so they were, okay, they were in Rome, which is up here. You see my little pointer thing? And they had to travel down here, go through there, and up over to here, and there's Corinth. So that was a long trek. So they had to pack up everything they had. It wasn't that easy. It wasn't like we, you know, we do today where we have a job waiting for us and we have a moving van, that kind of thing. They had to jump on a boat and they had to travel to a foreign country, basically. They went from Italy to Greece. And so it must have been extremely hard to leave your livelihood. And it was just so many unknowns. But while they were there, God had a plan, didn't he? And he brought Paul to them. And they had uh, taken up the, the, the craft of tent making. It's also suggested that they worked with leather goods. Uh, this must have been a new job for them because in Rome, they weren't near uh, any place that would have been using that kind of thing. But now they're working with leather goods and tent making just like 
Paul is. And so they're hanging out with him. It isn't known if they were Christians before they came to Corinth or not. But when you have Paul move in to your house, guess what? Things happen. I mean, how can you resist Paul, right? He's such an evangelist. And it's estimated that Paul dwelled with them for about 18 months before our next scripture, which is found in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. It says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Crachia. I'm sure I completely slaughtered that name, but there he shaved his head. And I found that really, okay, I always have to know, okay, why did he shave his head? Well, apparently he had made a, uh, a vow to live a holy and pure life before the Lord for a certain time. Um, I was reminded uh, before the, the Dodgers uh, won the, the World Series, Justin Turner, if you ever know who, anybody know who he is? He's that redhead guy that, and his hair was getting so long and his beard was getting so long. And he says, I'm not going to shave my, hair, or my beard or cut my hair until I win the World Series. Well, that year they didn't win. So he goes, oh, well, I guess I'll cut it anyway. But it was kind of that same thing. He says, you know, I'm making a vow. He was presenting a traditional view of holy living to the Jews there that he was trying to minister to. And so when he left that area, he goes, okay, now I can cut my hair to the way it was before. It just kind of makes it sound like, you know, he was complete chrome dome or something, but he wasn't. He just cut his beard and cut his hair. And so Continuing on, it says, Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the others behind. And so they got along so well with Paul that they decide to go into the mission field with him. And if you've ever been on missions trips, you know, when you've hung around with somebody for a long time, you know, that can test all relationships, can't it? And so, you know, apparently these guys got along famously. And so they went with, with Paul to Ephesus. And so going back to our map my pointer we went from Corinth and we traveled all the way to Ephesus over here again another 353 miles and you have to do this by ship now it sounds like my worst nightmare because when I get on the ocean I get sick but that's a story for another time um, but let's look at some facts about Ephesus what kind of place were they ministering in well Ephesus was a port city in Turkey it was once considered the most important Greek city in the Mediterranean region. Very wealthy, with gymnasiums, theaters, temples that worship many, many gods. They studied languages, philosophy, mathematics, excuse me, mathematics, mythology, and those types of things. And they put great importance on physical perfection. And if a child was born with any sort of defect, they would discard the child and just leave it to die. Very sad. So in a nutshell, this town was very pagan and a dark place that only thought they were advanced. Gee, sound like another country, you know? But, but Paul had a soft spot for the Ephesians and visited them whenever he could. And in this case, he left Priscilla and Aquila there to minister to the people at the church in Ephesus. And that is how we came upon our next scripture, 
Acts 18, 24 through 26. And it says, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, and we're talking about the Old Testament here, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord. And it's, it's important to note that he was taught by John the Baptist. And he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. When Priscilla, notice her name is mentioned first, and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. So now we have our first can of worms here. So Apollo sounds like quite a speaker. Aquila and Priscilla were very impressed with him, but they detected a serious flaw in his preaching. And so tactfully, they, uh, they didn't make any attempt to call him out during the service, but they pulled him aside later. And they, they taught him how Jesus lived how Jesus died, how Jesus rose again. He, they, they discipled him in the way of the Lord. And they did it gently and lovingly. Then we have the controversy here. Many people throughout history have tried to dispute this fact because how could a woman be allowed to teach a man? Well, it must have been Aquila by himself, some say. Or uh, all Priscilla did was explain, not teach. Now, I had to look at this one and kind of scratch my head. Okay, so she could explain the scriptures to Apollos, but didn't teach. Aren't they one and the same? Okay, so anyway, I don't want to split hairs here. And besides, they said, doesn't Paul go on to say that women aren't allowed to teach men? So, can a woman teach men? Now, Jeff and I have had many, many, many conversations about this, and we are in total agreement, just so you know. So basically, there are two simple points of view. Can a woman teach a man? First one is, no. Second one is, yes. That's it. Okay? See, this controversy stems from 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, where it states, now Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And you're probably saying, wow, does it really say that? But you have to remember, context is everything. We need to know the who, the where, and the why this is being stated. So who is stating it? Well, this is Paul talking to Timothy, who is Paul's student. Paul has been mentoring Timothy since he was a youngster. They were in Ephesus. And why was he mentioning this? Well, Timothy was probably having trouble with the highly educated Ephesian men and women. However, women who up until this point were considered inferior, and now they were considered valuable. See, when, when Jesus came upon the scene, women were once again brought to the position where they should have been. We studied uh, many very strong women. You remember uh, uh, last year now, but one of our first studies was about Deborah, who was actually a judge. You remember that? P 
people would come to her and they would, they would seek uh, advice from her because she was so wise. Remember, she had her own tree that she would sit under, her palm tree. And people, the people would go to her. She was a judge over all Israel. Okay, so keep that in the back of your mind. So what is Paul saying here? Well, at the time in Ephesus, women weren't allowed to go to school. They weren't allowed to learn to read or write. Some parents probably did that anyway. But as a general rule, these women were not taught these things. And so they were extremely ignorant. Notice I said ignorant, not dumb or stupid. They were ignorant of the, the scriptures. Only the men knew the scriptures. And so there is our context. Women were not qualified to teach. So let's look at how firm this statement is. And if it meant to be for the duration of the church as we know it. So Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. So lock that in your brain. Or did Paul say, do not permit women to teach, or women must not teach or have authority? See, the first is much softer. They sound very different, don't they? So when you couple it with the fact that Priscilla taught Apollos and that it is mentioned in the word of God, isn't it? One could conclude that there is more to this than meets the eye. Meets the eye excuse me. I read one commentary state it this way, and this was a man that wrote this. It says, theologically, it may be significant to observe that the Holy Spirit could have led Paul to use an imperative construction. In other words, the forceful one. Do not allow a woman to teach. That might be interjected as binding the church to follow that practice for all time. But instead, Paul used a construction that describes his practice without making it permanently binding. So our conclusion is this. The word allows women to teach men Otherwise, it wouldn't have been in the scripture where Priscilla is teaching Apollos. Yes, she did it with her husband, but she still taught. It didn't say that only Aquila taught. It said Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. But there are guidelines to this, and this is where we need to really have a heads up. God set up headship in the church, and that belongs to the men. God set up the man to be the spiritual head. Women are not to have authority over men in the church. So if you're a boss, don't worry. You don't have to quit your job because you have authority over men. This is only in the spiritual, okay? It's, this is the headship in the church, it's much like a senior pastor or lead pastor. And there are many ways women can teach and be used in the church. But the most important thing is that you honor God's word and that we do it in a humble spirit. We don't force ourselves. We don't make ourselves say, hey, I want to teach Sunday morning. Jeff asked me to teach a Thursday night one time, and I said, no way. I'm getting up there, and I'm teaching on a Thursday. Just because it would be so controversial, wouldn't it? And it's like, I don't know. No, I don't want to go there. I wouldn't do that. And he goes, well, let me know when you change your mind. I'm going, that ain't going to happen. So, <laughs> but you see, only because people, it, it, we're still kind of uh, making sure that 
uh, we honor the Lord in that we're not being uh, uh, dishonoring to the people around us also. But the church is a family, and God created the family. And in the family, men are the spiritual heads, aren't they? And so likewise, in the church, men are to be the spiritual head. It's not a question of who is better or who is more gifted. See, male and female roles are not identical, and nor are they interchangeable. So, hope that clarifies it somewhat. Uh, let's learn more about Priscilla, though. When is she mentioned next? And it was in Paul's final greetings, and I found this fascinating, and there's no controversies. Uh, but they're very interesting facts. Let's look at these. Romans 16, 3 through 4. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches here in the province of Asia send, send greetings in the Lord, as do Aquila and Priscilla and all others who gather in their home for church meetings. So they had like a home church. 2 Timothy 4.19, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila and those living in the household of Onesiphorus. Again, completely slaughtered that. Um, there it is. Sorry. So what is interesting about these verses or the total verses about Priscilla. Of the seven times Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the Bible, Priscilla is mentioned first in five of the seven times. So what does that tell us? That means like, you know, she's more important than her husband? No, it just means that she kind of takes, in this case, the lead role. Uh, in other words, Paul looks to Priscilla as, I guess, in, in a sense, the, the, the more dominant of the two. And don't get, you know, get it out of your mind that she's dominating her husband. That's not the case. It just means she has more of an impact. God had gifted her in, in this area. So why is this significant? See, when someone is mentioned first, they have a place of honor in the heart of the speaker or writer. I'm always interested in listening to my parents. Uh, whenever they, most people, when they mention my husband and I, it's Jeff and Connie Gill. Well, whenever my parents mention it, it's always Connie and Jeff. Why? Because I'm their daughter. I'm, I, I mean, they, they love, they adore Jeff, but they will always look at us as Connie and Jeff. She does the same thing with my other siblings. She always meant, they always mention their child first. Why? Because I'm their child. You see, so it's kind of the same thing. And, and Paul, when he thinks of Priscilla and Aquila, it's like, I always think of Priscilla first. Paul and Luke both. See, Luke was the writer of Acts. He mentioned Priscilla first once. Aquila first another time. But why would Paul 
want to mention her first? Well, we know she was a great servant of God. She was a hard worker. She labored alongside her husband in the tent making business. And back then, you know, women didn't go to work like that. You know, they were supposed to be the homemakers, but she worked hard alongside. No doubt because they had to pick up everything and start a new business altogether. And it just took hard work of them both. But they still had time to be a servant. Priscilla still had time to be a servant of God in her own home. So let's sum up Priscilla. Well, we know she was a discipler, excuse me, a disciple or follower of Jesus. She was also a discipler of others. But her and her husband followed Paul in his ministry. And she was devoted to Jesus and the gospel. And she was hospitable. I love that. She opened up her home to others so that her and her husband could disciple them. We also know that Priscilla was a teacher. And as believers, we are all called to teach in some capacity. You know, some of you teach children, some of you teach Sunday school, some, some of you will teach uh, uh, like home Bible studies, that kind of thing. See, we're all called to teach in some form or fashion. And what that means is, first, we, we win them to Christ. We lead others to, to the Lord, in other words. And then we build them up, mentor, disciple, equip them for the ministry. And we are all called to the ministry, aren't we? You might say, well, I'm not in the ministry because, you know, I don't work for the church. No, we're all called to, to minister to others, to take care of others. That's what ministry means. And so this is what Priscilla did. And then we're to send them out. Once we've saved them, discipled them, then they're ready to go out and repeat the process. In other words, now those people that we have mentored, discipled in the ways of the Lord, can now go out and win others to Christ. Then they will disciple others, and then they will send those people out. And pretty soon, that's how the church grew exponentially during those times. It grew so fast. It spread throughout uh, the region in, in like lightning speed. And this is what Priscilla taught. She was the, the house church leader or one of the house church leaders. And Paul mentioned this in his final greeting. She opened up her home so that Christians could be taught and mentored and discipled. And Paul looked at them as his co-workers his partners, and we all need those, don't we? We need those partners to help us through. He even stated that they risked their lives for him. Now, I would love to know the backstory on that one, but I could find nothing. But no doubt, it was probably because this was very difficult times. Persecution of the church had started to ramp up. Uh, Christians were being uh, executed. Uh, they were being crucified. They were being imprisoned. And Paul says here, they even saved my life one time. Maybe they, they hid him or something like that. And that just shows us that Priscilla was also a very dear friend. When Paul mentions her and her husband in 2 Timothy, I'm fascinated by this because this was his last letter. 2 Timothy, to me, was very, very solemn. That's the, the same book where, where Paul writes, I have, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. He knew his life was coming to an end, and he wanted to remember 
Priscilla and Aquila at the end of, his, of this final letter that he was writing. Can you imagine the impression this couple must have had on him? It is estimated that he ministered with Priscilla and Aquila for 18 years. And it must have been very, very hard years. One thing we also know about Priscilla is she was a faithful wife. And I love this. She ministered alongside her husband. Never do you hear about Priscilla without Aquila being mentioned. And never do you hear Aquila without Priscilla being mentioned. And so they were kind of attached at the hip. Uh, scripture presented them as co-equals. Uh, their legacy was not the churches they founded in their homes, but it was the model of ministry that they presented. They were the, the model of servants to the Lord. They were a model of, of a couple and how a couple reacts and acts towards each other and around others. Uh, they, were, they were greatly into evangelism and discipleship and that kind of thing. They were always together winning people for the Lord and building them up and sending them out. And it was a commitment to each other that had to have been so strong in order to get through all the difficulties and the trials that they had. They dearly loved each other. Tradition has it that they eventually were martyred and they died together just like Paul did. But that's probably in history books. It's not mentioned in the scriptures. But what can we learn? What can we learn about her life? So many times we look at people like Priscilla and think that they are like larger than life, don't we? It's like, wow, I could never be like her. See, when she left home, excuse me, left Rome, her home, she may not have been a believer. However, she was soon sold out for Jesus, wasn't she? And she became a follower of his. And that is where she found her strength. Ephesians 6.10 tells us, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So the first lesson Priscilla found is that her strength was not in herself, but in the Lord. It wasn't something that she could do. And likewise, we could, could not or should not even attempt to serve God in this manner without his strength. We cannot do this on our own. And so many times we go, oh, I just can't do that. Well, you, you know what? You're right. You can't. But God can. God can. God can do anything through you. I'm a testament of that. Uh, when, maybe 20 years ago, there is no way in the world I would have stood up here and talked to you gals. No way. I would have been scared to death. I'd be stuttering all over the place. But God gives you the strength. When he calls you, he gives you that strength. God created Priscilla for a specific purpose, and that was to minister with Paul and her husband. And wherever God planted her, she thrived. And that was because she allowed the Lord to plant her wherever he saw fit, because he knows exactly what she can and cannot do because he created her, right? Because I created you, I know what you can take. Second lesson we can learn is that Priscilla did not care what the critics said. She went against the norms of the day, and she was bold. I love this. 
Philippians 1, 20 through 21 tells us, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that the full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is to gain. See, Priscilla risked her reputation, her well-being, and her life to serve Jesus. She was sold out. She didn't care what others thought. A woman in that day was supposed to accept her place, and it usually was not a place of honor, was it? She wasn't supposed to teach. She wasn't supposed to work outside the home, but she did. This is what God had called her to do. All she knew is that she wanted to serve Jesus with all her heart, mind, and soul. Third lesson, Priscilla loved people, just loved them. She wanted to minister to them. She wanted them to be the best that they could be through Christ. John 13, 34, 35 tells us, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. So Priscilla lived this out practically by her actions. She showed Jesus Christ to others. And it's like the old saying, preach the gospel always, and if you have to, use words. You see, isn't that the truth? People look at our actions more than our words. I mean, we could say uh, Jesus is, you know, God is love, Jesus is love all day, but if we are not loving, they're going to go, okay, there's a contradiction here. Do you really believe it or not? So our actions preach the gospel. They really do. Can we do this on our own? Of course not. But... It is a true mark of the believer. 1 John 4, 7 tells us, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. See, God is love. Love is a way we can tell if we are a true believer. If you have trouble loving people, that's when we do a heart check. I mean, is it a temporary setback? I mean, it's like somebody's really made you mad and you can't love that person. And after a while, the Lord convicts you and you're going, yeah, 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 I know I got to love them too. You know, that happens to me. You know, eventually the Holy Spirit wins out. But if you don't allow that love to be in your heart, are you a true follower of Jesus? And that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To, to, Search your own heart and say, hmm, I don't love people like I should. What does that mean? What does that mean? Again, can you do this on your own? Of course not. The reason why this love is the mark of a believer is because we have the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit is the third part of the Trinity, isn't he? So if we have the Holy Spirit in us, then we have love in us and that comes out although we do it imperfectly at times that love still is there if you have no love in your heart do you have the holy spirit in your heart that's the question see when we hear about people who seem to be 
larger than life, we tend to think that it could never be you. Oh, I could never love like that. Or I could never serve God like that. I could never preach like that. I, you know, fill in the blank. I mean, I've been there myself. But Philippians 1.6 tells us, being confident of this very thing, that he who began begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What does that tell you? This is not something that we do on our own. Again, it's the Holy Spirit living within us, teaching us day to day. And that process takes time. It doesn't happen overnight while we sleep. Even if you put like earphones in and listen to scriptures all night. You know, it doesn't happen that way. It takes hard work. It takes studying God's word. It takes prayer. It takes dying to yourself. Ouch. That's one of the hardest, right? And it takes complete surrender to the Lordship. A scripture that pretty much sums this up is found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's how we worship God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, how do we do this? The steps are right here, aren't they? First, it's by the mercy of God. If it wasn't for his mercy and grace, we would be nowhere. Remember that. Then we're to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. You might be saying, well, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that you don't consider your own life as your own. You were bought with a price. When we accepted Jesus and said, Lord, I want to be a follower of you. I want to spend eternity with you. I want you to forgive my sins. See, we either belong to Jesus or we belong to the enemy. There's no in-between spot. Being a living sacrifice means you surrender completely to his lordship. That is how we have victory. Then it goes on to say, don't be conformed to this world. Oh my goodness, that's a hard one. It's so easy to just follow the path of everybody else in the world, isn't it? And we can do this by what we do, what we wear, what we think, what we watch, what we drink, what we eat. I mean, you name it. We can transform, be transformed by the world, or we can be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, if you let garbage come in, guess what comes out? Garbage. But if you renew your mind, if your sights are set on Jesus, if your sights are set on his word, then you will have good things that come out, not the garbage of the world that comes out. But what does renew mean? I loved the definitions I found in the dictionary. It says resume after an interruption. I'm going, oh, that's perfect. So we all sin. And when we do, confess it and get back to walking with Jesus. That means resume or renew or reestablish. 
you know, put ourselves back on that solid foundation that we may have tumbled off of because of our sin. See, we confess it, God restores. Instantly, we are restored. There's no process. We say, Lord, I blew it. Please forgive me. He says, done. All is re reestablished. And the best way to accomplish these things is to dwell on the things of the Lord. My go-to place is found in Philippians 4.8. I love this verse. It's my whatever verse. And I mention it whenever possible. Sorry, you've probably heard it before. But Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, don't follow after false things. Whatever things are noble. How many times do we dwell on bad things? And what happens? You just spiral down farther and farther and farther. It says, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure. Now, who is pure? Jesus. Whatever things are lovely. Who is love? God is. God is love. Think on him. Whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Don't meditate on the bad stuff. Meditate on the good stuff. These things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace, here comes the promise, will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Don't we all want peace? I think we all do. And this is the promise. If we meditate on these things, we will have peace in our life. When things get cloudy, when you get worried, when you get frustrated, when you get mad, think on these things. Think on the goodness of the Lord. And that's when that peace that passes all understanding will come and it will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, there is so much to, to think on, to meditate on in this this story of Priscilla, and I would ask that, as we do, that we would have your heart, that nothing would be there that isn't of you. If I have said anything that isn't of you, of you Lord, would you strike it from their memories? Lord, we are so thankful for the examples you have given us by Priscilla and her husband Aquila and Paul, and all these wonderful saints that we read about. Lord, they were ordinary people just like we are, were. And yet you did extraordinary things through them. And you desire to do extraordinary things through each one of us. All you ask is that we surrender. And so I would ask, Lord, that you speak into each one of these precious ladies' hearts that they would know what it is to surrender to you completely, to be that living sacrifice so that they can have that peace that guards their heart and mind in you. So we love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.